0: Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Progeny Podcast. Today my guest is Father Christopher Clohisi. I'm delighted to have Father Christopher once again with me, a scholar in Shia theology and Shia history from the Pontifical Institute for Arabic and Islamic Studies in Rome. He has also published three books, Fatima, Daughter of Muhammad, Half of My Heart, and Angels Hastening the Karbala Dreams. Father Christopher, thank you for joining us. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Our last interview was approximately two years ago. That's right. um, Before this uh, pandemic. Uh, How have you been, first of all, uh, in this lockdown world that we live in now?
1: Well, quite busy because we've had to teach online. um, And teaching online is not particularly comfortable. But also I've had time to do some research. And if you can't be out and about, then you have to stay in your room and work. And so I've been working and, and worked on a few issues and a few texts. So, you know. I got away unscathed. I didn't lose anyone I loved. I didn't get sick myself. And I understand lots of other people have been through dreadful times. So I do understand that.
0: Father Christopher, um, this year in March, um, I want to start off by asking you about the famous visit of the Pope since you are in Rome uh, and uh, in close contact with the uh, Vatican um, and you teach uh, at the Institute um how, first of all, um, did you think the visit went of the Pope to Iraq? And then hopefully we can speak about the details of, of his visit to Ayatollah Sistani.
1: I, I would say that in terms of the pontificate, in other words, the reign of Francis as Pope, however long that's going to last, that this was a highlight. I don't think he's going to achieve anything else as big or as important as this visit uh, and it's important on a, obviously a number of levels, but I genuinely believe that on every level, political, religious, social, even just timing, it was absolutely flawless. It was a truly great visit, or he as he called it, a pilgrimage, because he said he was going on pilgrimage to Iraq um, in the footsteps of Abraham. And I think it was absolutely perfect and absolutely flawless on every, on every level.
0: The, the visit, um, obviously, was three days, quite a hectic pilgrimage, uh, as he described it uh, as a pilgrimage, uh, starting off in Baghdad. Um, and on the second day, um, he visited uh, probably the holiest city in, uh, uh, in the Shia world, uh, the city where the Hausa the seminary, has been. For the last uh, 1000 or so years, from the time of Sheikh Al Tusi, um, and he managed uh, to visit Grand Ayatollah Sayyid Ali Al Husseini Al Sistani, uh, who is the current Grand Marji', the Grand Scholar uh, for the Shia. What details uh, could you share with us about that visit between the Pope and Grand Ayatollah Sistani?
1: That visit was really the visit of two genuinely good men. I mean, men who are serious about faith, about God, about peace, about justice. They're not showmen. They're genuinely religious people. They're both men of a certain age as well. In other words, they're men who carry with them years of learning and wisdom and prayer and scholarship. And I I genuinely believe, without trying to candy-coat the visit, that you had at that moment the meeting of two minds that are pretty much on the same level, that you had two men who are to use a a more contemporary expression, reading off the same page. Both of them are serious about justice. Both of them are serious about peace. Both of them are serious about God in the marketplace. In other words, that God should not be excluded from the life of the world and from ordinary, everyday, public life in the world. And so you had had these two men coming from very different worldviews, a Catholic worldview and a Shia worldview, and yet who were able to meet in perfect harmony and agree on, on a number of issues, even if we don't know what they spoke about precisely, we know that issues of justice and peace and, and the issues of secularism and the dangers of secularism would have been, would have been high on the list. And, and therefore, it's already enough just to see the two, the two men meeting as a symbolic gesture of two great men who, who carry the world, in a sense, in their hearts and the needs of the world without necessarily having to know what they, they spoke about. So, you know, Najaf as a city is is important, yes, because the spirit of a hangs over that hausa and always will, and because of the tomb of Ali present there, and of course because of Al Sistani present there. So it's already a, a holy city for a number of reasons, and and it's important that the Pope went to that city as a city, um, met with a religious leader who is deeply and highly regarded by millions of people throughout the world, as is the Pope, but went to him not as a head of state, uh, but simply as a pilgrim, a brother in God, visiting a brother in God to talk about things that are necessary. Symbolically, above all, it was an extraordinary moment in world history. People don't know that now. They'll know eventually. They'll come to understand that. It's, it's
0: definitely an historical moment because, you know... Um it's the first time the po- a pope visits uh, the holy city of Najaf, and it's interesting you mention a brother meeting another brother, and you know in the city of Ali, whose famous lines uh, were you know placard on posters in Najaf, you know the famous lines from the from the letter Imam Ali sent to Malik al ashtar his governor in Egypt, which was you know uh, people are of two kinds, either you brother in faith or your brother in humanity so um we saw we saw you know a moving moment when images and some short videos came out uh, of that visit specifically them embracing uh, the prayer that they both made for for i'm sure peace uh, of the world Um, how did people at the Vatican and people maybe at the Institute see that, was there any negativity from that meeting or was it all positive? How did, how did you read between the lines of certain commentators or those involved, journalists or those involved in the Vatican? Was there?
1: Was it all positive? And I'm talking about specifically that meeting. So the first thing that one could say is that you know as well as I do that in modern religion, there are plenty of charlatans who do things on camera. We know this. And it's quite easy to embrace somebody on camera, even your enemy on camera, if you're being watched. Um, But here you had the general sense felt by everybody. I think Muslim and Christian alike, you had two genuine men embracing really as brothers and who who believe each other to be a brother without just saying that for the sake of harmony so the visit in rome and in catholic circles was applauded and warmly received and i didn't hear a single word of criticism It it was understood that the Pope was going to Iraq as a country and that he was going to see a number of people. He was certainly going to talk to the Christian community who, like the Muslim community, have come through the horrors of war uh, more than many other countries. He was going also to to travel in the footsteps of Abraham, who is held commonly by all of us Mm -hmm. as an ancestor, if you like, in faith. And he was going to meet an important Shi'i religious leader, as two years before he had met the Sheik of Al Azhar. So, in a sense, it was the Pope extending his embrace to the whole Islamic world, not just part of the Islamic world. And that was a very important gesture. I heard no criticism from anybody about that about that journey or about that. Meeting, And I would have disregarded any criticism as uninformed and not particularly intelligent because anybody with eyes to see or ears to hear, anybody who cares about the world as it is right at this moment would have seen two men who have a great deal of wisdom and a great deal of holiness embracing and few things better than that as far as I'm concerned.
0: Uh, those close in, in, in Hausa house circles, commentators, um, people involved in, in, in within members of the Marjaiya office, um, all mention you know the the, the way uh, Ayatollah Sistani lives in such a modest and humble way. Uh, Ayatollah Sistani is uh, always credited for. Um, him speaking out when there is a need for it and a lot of the times uh, he'll whenever he does speak he will speak with wisdom mm. whether it was when it came to the writing of the iraqi constitution, where he said famously to then the u.s assigned uh ambassador to iraq paul Bremer, that Leave the decision of Iraq to Iraqis I'm not an Iraqi Neither are you Leave it in their hands That quote became very famous The second, you know When they bombed the Shia shrine in Samarra He came out and famously said uh, The Ahlul Sunnah are not our brothers They are ourselves When the country was going to erupt into a civil war And he calmed the tensions The third was when parts of Sunni Iraq taken over by isis and again he came out calling for jihad to fight uh, the terrorists uh, so he's always he picks what every move very tactically he's very wise and the fact that he accepted this invitation is also shows his his wisdom um, and i'm sure uh, you've noticed some of this wisdom and i'm sure the. Uh, those in, in, in close circles uh of the Vatican have also realized this hence why they made the the, the you know the the move to 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 this to this meeting and and, and wanted this meeting to happen what i want to point to and ask you is is, 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 is is his humble and modest life which i felt some commentators mentioned especially those maybe that did not know much about Grand Ayatollah Sistani And I'm talking those You know in the western media And I saw some news reports in, Across certain media outlets in America And here talking about the modesty Of Ayatollah Sistani And some commentators in Iraq Also picked up on this And you know Not that there was a, there is a comparison But some people might compare You know because they're both Religious leaders And the way Uh they live is sometimes spoken about mm. uh, you are close in, in w- with with the circles in, in the Vatican how does the Pope live now and I'm sure you he and other people saw the way Grand Ayatollah Sistani lives does he also live that modest life mm-hmm. um, and can you give us details of that
1: so there is no doubt that the modesty of the, the Grand Ayatollah is striking um, he he's a religious leader who lives his faith. You know, we've got, again, religious leaders all over the world who drive big cars and fly jets and and one can make one's own decision about of that. Of course. So, um, now, now um, there were some people on social media who, who then played him off against the Pope and said, oh, but the Pope lives in a marble palace. Actually, he doesn't. Mm. The Pope lives in a f- smaller space than I do in Rome. I've got a slightly more space than the Pope. Um, he lives in a hotel, uh, which he shares with... A uh, hundred and twenty other people, and he lives in two or three rooms. That's all mm. he's got. He he lives modestly. Of course, there is another thing that's important, and that is they are not equal in status because the Pope is also a head of state. Yes, the Vatican is an independent country, and therefore he is the head of state, and therefore. The surroundings in which he finds himself are the surroundings that most head of states, heads of state, find themselves in. Nonetheless, I think both men, in their own milieu and in their own vocation or their own calling in life, lives a, a, a particularly simple life compared to compared to many. That's not to detract from Al Sistani, because I think his modesty is is breathtaking, and. And, and you know, and and you know, the old adage that actions speak louder than words comes into play here. That religious people, we talk about these things, but when you see it lived, it's jaw dropping. I mean, that's what brings people to faith. Um, but there's no need to play the two off each other, as some people did, Definitely. because they're two different people coming from different worldviews, and they have a different calling in, in life. But I know for the fact that Pope Francis has a particular passion for the poor and has has set out in rome to to make sure that housing is available that shelter is available for people living on the street and that he himself lives exceptionally um, simply and um, with the constraints of the papacy because the papacy is as I said, uh, is more than a religious leadership, and there are certain things that heads of state have to do. They have to welcome other heads of states mm. in good surroundings. They have to do all of that sort of thing. Oh. But he went to he went to the Ayatollah as as a, as a pilgrim. pilgrim. He said this, I'm not coming as a head of state, but a pilgrim. And the most telling thing of all is that if you watch the interview with the Pope on the plane afterwards mm. coming home, Quite often, he says the most important things on the aeroplane to the journalists. And he said quite clearly, I have just met in Ayatollah Sistani a man of God and a man of faith and a man of deep humility. Mm. And in those three words, he basically summed up what you and I know to be true. But for a pope to say that about a, a leader of another religion is an extraordinary thing. It's groundbreaking.
0: Obviously, the the, 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 the visit was uh, historic, historic. Um It wasn't just specifically for the visit of Grand Ayatollah Sistani. He also met the Christians of Iraq who Mm. uh, are a minority but a very important uh, group in Iraq. Mm. Uh, They are Iraqis. The Christians were there before Muslims, no (laughs) doubt. Uh, And they faced a lot of persecution. They faced a lot of a lot of them were displaced from their homes recently. So I think for them uh, it was a sign of hope to have the Pope visit them because sometimes the Christians outside of Europe maybe, or I would say maybe those maybe minorities in the Middle East feel that they have been maybe forgotten. So Mm -hmm. I think that was very important. As you mentioned, you know, it was a pilgrimage to Iraq. So th- that was very important. And for me, what was moving as well was his visit to Mosul, specifically him sitting uh, on the chair where he spoke. Behind him, the ruins of what was left, the destruction of what was left from ISIS. And that was to say that, for me specifically, it was to say that go- good will always win mm-hmm. and God will always be on the side of good. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, really, in a sense, by his visit, he was saying that even if some countries have treated Iraq like dirt and stamped all over it and have seen it bombed and its citizens killed, that's not the way he views Iraq. That's not the way the church views Iraq. And that he went to the whole Iraqi people who have come through all of this to say to them, you are as important on the world stage as any other country. Your importance... Your greatness as a country has got nothing to do with how big your army is or how many weapons you have or your financial status. Your, your greatness as a human being uh, has to do with how much you as a country bless the countries around you. That's what it is. I mean, that's what makes human beings great. What makes people great is not how much finances they have or how much power they have or how much education they have, but whether their lives bless the lives of others the way the life of Abraham blessed the generations that came after him. That is the greatness of of Ibrahim. And he was saying that to Iraq, even if some countries have treated you so badly, you are no less important than any other country in the view of of at least the church, if nobody else. And my visit to you is as important to my visit to any other country. And that's very important.
0: How significant do you think this visit is, specifically when it comes to strengthening relationships and ties and interfaith work between Muslims and specifically Shia Mm. and uh, the Christians, specifically the Catholics. I mean, of, of course, there's a lot of work that's done by other small organizations. There's a lot of work done by different personalities that visit the Vatican and vice versa. Some who visit Qom. But this was huge, you know, for the Pope to visit Najaf. And it goes a long way. You, know, you mentioned uh, you know, that m- some people might not realize how significant or important it is now, but in the future they will. How do you see the future you know, between Christians as well as the Shia Muslims?
1: I- I'm glad you used the word strengthen because some people were saying you know, this is the beginning of a great dialogue, which it wasn't at all. Mm. The dialogue between Christianity and Islam but specifically Catholic Christianity and Shi Islam, has been going on for a long time, 40, 50, 60 years or more. Certainly since the 1960s, the Church has tried to make more effort in this direction. There's been a long, healthy, good tradition of Shi' Catholic dialogue based in London, based in Ampleforth, based in Tehran, based in Rome. That's been going on for years, and some really great people have been part of that. The Pope's visit gives impetus to what's happening already. It gives impetus even to tiny groups who day by day are waging peace instead of waging war. Mm. And that's already a great thing. So I, I, I hope that the embrace of these two great men would remind people of universal brotherhood, that, that all kinds of things bring us together and that for the sake of the world, religions have to live at peace. If we don't live at peace, the world is never going to experience peace. We we have to live at peace and we have no real reason not to be at peace, really. Except if we feel threatened by the other. And that's a terrible way to live. That's like being some animal caught in the headlights of an oncoming car and frozen in time, not knowing what to do. Who wants to live like that, terrified of the other? I don't want to live terrified of the other, but at the same time, I don't want to be tolerated. Toleration, religious tolerance, is a horrible thing. Tolerance means I don't like you, but I'll put up with you. That's not human brotherhood. Human brotherhood, human sisterhood is a far more profound thing than that. And we saw two men from completely different theological positions, really. Both profess different creeds. Both come from a different world, embracing like brothers. Well, just the gesture alone, holding hands like brothers, is enough for me that, that we don't actually have anything to fight about. We should be fighting only one battle, and that is to get front row seats in the lives of people of different religions to learn wisdom from them. That's the only battle we should be fighting, and and that's what John, that's what Pope Francis did with the Grand Ayatollah. And I can't speak for the Ayatollah what he experienced in this meeting. I can speak because the Pope has told us what he experienced. That he he learned from it. He he was encouraged. He was inspired, and he came away changed by it. That's a wonderful thing.
0: That is. Um, were. Coming to the days of commemorating Ashura and uh, the martyrdom of Hussein ibn Ali, and you said something about that which unites us. How do you think Hussein ibn Ali can unite uh, the world, and specifically, how can Hussein ibn Ali salam, unite the Catholics and the Muslims?
1: Let's separate for a moment the theological elements because theology always brings problems with it. We know this. Let's take away the theology for a moment. In other words, what Shia theology says about Al-Hussein and what Catholic or Christian theology says about Jesus. Let's move that and just look at these two human beings because, because that's where the importance lies. So it seems to me that in every generation, great men and women are raised up who are willing to... Give up their rights so that the rights of others might be protected, or give up their lives even so that the lives of others may be qualitatively better. So, so both of these men had their lives taken from them, or if you like, they laid down their lives willingly. You can phrase it either way, um, before an unjust regime um, that was that was that was making that was making people's lives. Difficult or, at worst, miserable. So you had, in Yazid, a, a reigning um, caliph who who was not himself living Islamic principles. Even the Sunni texts say this. Even the Sunni texts admit that he was a drunkard and he liked gambling. That's hardly Islamic. And and in the time of Jesus, you had um, a religious system and a political system, Roman. Occupation that was oppressing ordinary everyday people either spiritually in a way that they couldn't possibly meet the demands or politically and both men were willing to take on these corruptions and these abuses at the cost of their own life so if you take the theology out we need people, ordinary people like us who are willing to, to take a stand and, and in every generation we get people like that and we may not always agree with the stand they take, but we have to admit their courage in taking that stand and speaking out for a particular cause or for humanity. So already in these two figures, aside again, I stress from the theology because the theologies are different and we can't mix those. Aside from the theology, just in terms of biography and history, you have two heroic men who gave up their lives so that other people's lives could be, could be at least qualitatively better in terms of faith, in terms of how they related to God, or in terms of the way they lived from day to day. And they left behind them not only a martyrdom, but more than that, they left an, a, a model of how life could be lived. So it's one thing to die for people, but, but to also leave to somebody, to the next generation, a model of how life should look if it's lived under God's law what life looks looks like lived under God with a daily belief in God and in submission to him, they left that behind as well. So it wasn't just the martyrdom. It wasn't just a voice in the wilderness speaking for truth or for justice or for righteousness. It was also, let me show you how it can be done. Both of them did that. Not in an arrogant way, but just by submitting themselves completely to God. Submission to God is dominant in the life of Al-Hussein and in the life of Jesus. They both submitted even to the point of death. And in doing that, they've left us more than a martyrdom. They've left us a model that that we can follow and use it as an exemplar, as a blueprint for how faith should be lived, how God should be approached, and how God should be should be submitted to in daily life.
0: Talking of um, Hussein ibn Ali yeah. and his submission, uh, and again, as you mentioned, the theology may be different. Uh, with Shiite theology about Jesus, or Muslim general theology about Jesus being different to that of the Christian viewpoint. Um, but looking at the, the concept of martyrdom, the concept of sacrifice uh, and submission, um, you know, tasleem, uh and, you know, there are many words of, of, of Imam Al-Hussein during the battle where he s- speaks to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala, um, While He's going through uh, a pain that cannot be described You mm. know, losing your child, losing your nephew, losing your eldest son, losing your beloved brother Yet He's always um, whispering to Himself and speaking to His Lord And telling Him this is all for you And I'm guessing within, shi- uh, within uh, Christian uh, works Jesus goes through that same sort of uh, supplication, where he's in a different world. Even though he may, like Hussein, feel a physical harm, yet he's in a different world. He's now in a, on a different level with 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 Allah Subhanahu wa Taala with with His Lord, and is that where most the comparison do you feel comes in their lives, or do you see other? Is it just their martyrdom Or do you see something before that So also,
1: I, I think it, it, part of it depends On how you define faith Because if we define faith as a creed um, An aqeed Then mm. there must be more to it than that It's not just a creed people recite Anyone can recite a creed That's not faith no, So I define faith in two words As lived conviction Because faith has to be lived out if you say you believe in God and you trust in him, then you have to live as though you believe in God. It's like, you know, it's not enough to have principles. We actually have to live by our principles. We can't just say, well, I've got principles and then not live them. Faith is a lived conviction. The fact that Al-Hussein, uh, on, on the day of Karbala, especially when 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 he was seeing all of his loved ones killed and knew that his own death was coming, uh, the fact that Jesus, on the night before he died, praying in the garden in the Christian scriptures and then being arrested, the fact that they could keep and maintain this relationship with God meant their faith was lived faith, not just academic faith or intellectual faith or even heart faith. It was lived conviction that that God would not abandon them and that they were fulfilling as perfectly they, as they could his will. At that moment, they were exactly where God ordained them to be and and desired them to be. Now, we, we talk quite easily about martyrdom, but martyrdom is a terrifying thing. I mean, we have to be honest that for most of us, it's difficult even to give up a bad habit. You know, ask somebody to give up chocolate or ask, watch people struggle during Ramadan or, you know, when they're fasting and it's a real battle. What if God asked us to give up our lives if I can't even give up a bad habit? Mm-hmm. Martyrdom is a, a terrifying thing. And and the martyrs are the ones who have faith as a lived conviction. That they are so actually convinced in the truth of God and in of his revelation that they are ready to, to lay down their lives. They're not fearless. We should never say that. They just know that, that they can continue to give themselves to God in spite of their fear.
0: So the concept of martyrdom is something that's present in, in Catholic teachings and...
1: Practice martyrdom has been an element of the Christian Church since the beginning. The Christian Church began with martyrs um, you know in 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 Christian Rome, people were being massacred, and martyrdom has continued throughout Christian history. Every year, the Vatican produces a list of the names of all those who have been martyred, Christians who've given up their lives, been massacred. I mean, you know in Nigeria. At the moment, we've got massacres of Christian communities by radical groups. They're martyrs being produced all the time. Um, And some people give their lives freely. Other people have their lives taken from them. Some people do it with a lived conviction in God. Other people go in terror and fear. But martyrdom is a gift from God. It's not something we achieve as human beings. God gives this gift to his chosen martyrs. Because together with martyrdom, there has to be heroic fortitude to be ready to give your life. Um, you know, I know, I know people who will, who will give their lives for what they believe. There mm. are people who will do that. There are fewer people who will give their lives for what they've seen. And when somebody claims that they have seen God at work, that they believe in him because they've seen his actions in people's lives and in the world and are willing to die for that, that's an extraordinary thing. Uh, it goes beyond dying for things we believe in. You know, political people die for things they believe in. But, but here, we, here we're talking about people who are willing to, for, to die for a God who cannot be seen.
0: Mm, there's a difference, yeah.
1: You know, and yet people have seen his actions his and that's enough for them it's It's an extraordinary thing martyrdom and and we we are inclined to talk about it quite glibly when in fact, every single martyr is a person of such heroic virtue, such lived conviction that we have to stand back, take our shoes off, and say, Well, this is something extraordinary so you have you have in both christianity and and in Islam and of course in Judaism, the idea of martyrdom, those who lay down their lives. For the sake of God, in the way of God or in the path of God or for God, however you want to express it um, and and part of that is laying down your life for your religion because religion is the the justice that is due to God that we worship him that's what religion is. so people who die because they belong to a particular religion are dying for God uh, for the justice for the virtue of or, or the justice that that is giving God his worship and submission um and it's happening it's been happening ever since the beginning people are still being martyred um i think there are all other types of martyrdom too there's psychological martyrdom you know when you live in fear mm. of practicing your faith because you know a, a, a muslim woman puts on hijab and goes out into the street and gets mocked mm. there's a form of martyrdom there because it takes real courage to mm. stand up to that or a christian living in a minority community gets gets frightened or mocked or, or abused That's real martyrdom. It's not just people who shed their blood. There are other types of martyrdom too. I also think there's the martyrdom of saying no to your nafs Mm. because our lower nature is constantly trying to entice us into forms of behavior that we know are wrong. And it's very difficult not to conform with the world and say, oh, well, everyone's doing it. It must be okay. There's a real martyrdom in living out obedience and submission to God because it means saying no to a whole lot of things that other people around us are saying yes to quite easily. And it always looks from a religious point of view as though everybody's having more fun than we are, because we're trying to obey the commandments of God, which forbid all kinds of things, rightly so. There's a real martyrdom there. The martyrdom of the of the higher enoughs, if you like, saying no to the low enoughs. That's that's real martyrdom. People think religion's a crutch. It's not a crutch. It takes courage to live faith and to submit yourself to the will of a god you've never seen and and this lived conviction that his word is true, his revelation is worthy of belief and worthy to be lived. There's martyrdom in many ways.
0: It's interesting you mentioned hijab as a source as a sort of martyrdom, the fact that it takes real courage. For Muslim women to go out in hijab, uh, sometimes in society where they may be mocked or harassed, and and I sometimes feel the the media or or, or certain uh, political um, governments or groups um, always look down against the hijab of women. Uh, whether it's you know now in certain countries hijab is banned. in At the workplace, Um, hijab is banned, for example. It's seen as, uh, some uh, you know, you're supporting, you're showing your faith, so it's banned in schools in certain European countries, maybe, or workplaces. And I say, you know, but we also have uh, our nuns. Teaching in schools. Teaching in schools. So (laughs) so isn't there a double standard here? And sometimes, uh, I've read, again, some people say, you know, Christians who hold... uh, positions that uh, can speak are not speaking enough for the hijab of women when you know the the nuns uh, could be next you know if they are attacking women in hijab mm-hmm. they'll come for the nuns next you know should we have more christians who are at positions where they can speak especially maybe uh, in a more uh, way that could be understood by the west maybe for a, sometimes an imam speaking might not be taken uh, very well, maybe. But should you know the, the more needs to be done to support women, for example, and and yeah. their right
1: to wear hijab. Look, the, 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 the first thing you have to say is that in the secular West now, people don't understand what hijab is anyway. Because they, they don't, also don't understand what a nun is, generally. Most people don't know what a nun is, why she wears a veil, why she does what she does. Most people don't. So mm. it's unlikely you're going to get support from there. But, you know, the media regularly does us disservice. It's the media who have created the idea of jihad. Of course they have. We know what jihad means because the, the, the prophet of Islam defined jihad quite clearly, not in the same way that the media does. Mm. The media have created this worldwide horror of holy war. Well, we know that in Arabic, jihad does not mean war. There are other words in Arabic for war, mm. and you could easily express holy war in another way. In the same way, the media have turned uh, the Western media, especially, have turned the idea of hijab into religious symbolism, forgetting that that Europe began as a Christian, uh, you know, uh, with Christian roots, in which symbolism was and continues to be quite strong. You know, every church has a cross. Religious, religious like myself, wear religious garb. This is religious symbolism. But we've been we've been fed this these horror stories of Islamic symbolism, you know, the hijab and all of this as an imposition on our Western freedom and our Western values because, because in the West people don't understand what freedom is. They think freedom means you can do what you like. It doesn't mean that. Freedom has boundaries and borders. And one of the things about true freedom is that it respects the intercultural, multi-faith situation in which we're living and th- that it's given to each. You know, if, if somebody's doing harm in society, that's one thing. If somebody chooses to dress in a particular way, that's another. The fact is that, again, in a city like London, I- even in a city like Rome where I wear, one sees people dressed in the most extraordinary ways that they would never have done 40 years ago. And, and, and therefore, there is freedom of dress except for some. Mm. And that's a, that's a real issue. Um, so I don't have a particular theology of hijab because it's not something that I I know particularly well. But I do know that religious people have the right to dress in a particular way, a modest way, if that is their choice, and if that is part of their religious creed or faith. And that to prevent some but not others is problematic for me and there, I mean there have been times I know for a fact it works both ways because there was a time under Ataturk in Turkey mm. when Christian priests and nuns were forbidden to dress like priests and nuns they had to wear suits mm. and ties we know this so it, it it works in both ways under secularism but to find the balance is difficult and it's unlikely that at this time you're going to have lots of Christians speaking for hijab because it's not a concept they're understanding particularly
0: you mentioned jihad and I want to go back um To to what you said about Saying no to your nafs And combining that with jihad Is the ultimate Jihad Because You're not only saying no to your nafs And usually you're saying no to your nafs To a desire maybe Or to something that you are in in need Um, And this is embodied And I want to come back to Karbala By Al-Abbas Peace be upon him Al-Abbas Reaches, uh, I'm sure, as, as as you earlier told me before this podcast that you're in the, uh, you're starting your research on a book on Al Abbas, and hence why I'm asking you this question, is you know he he gets to that, and uh, my Shia followers and listeners know this, he gets to that point where he hasn't drank water for a few days, and he gets to the water and he feels the water, yet he says he sp- starts speaking to his nephews. Again, and you know, this is the 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 ultimate jihad, where not only you're fighting with your hands and sword, you're also now fighting within your nafs where he says, "Ya nephes min ba'd al Husseini Huni," those famous words which are recited every year, the lines of poetry that he recites, speaking to his nefs. Yeah. Through your research, how do you see? Uh, the brother of Hussein Abel Fadl Abbas.
1: So Abbas, um, and I've just really begun to research him, and with difficulty, as we discussed, because the texts, the primary texts, are quite few. But we'll see how it goes. A- a- Abbas, in one sense, for me, is the antidote to egotism, mm. because the world in which we live, and I'm not saying the West, I'm saying the world as a whole, is quite egotistic. It's it's the me generation. We we think a great deal about me, about my needs, my rights. My standard of uh, living—we concentrate very much on self—and here you have an example of a man who deliberately ignored his own self for the needs of others, most especially the the young girls who were crying out for water. And and so, you know, I I I think all of these people are are exemplars of something. And in a in living in a generation where we we are selfish, we really do think about our ourselves, our comfort, our needs. I mean, real humility is not thinking less about yourself. That's not humility. It's just thinking about yourself less. It's a different thing, and that's real humility. And so the humility of, 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 uh, of Abbas, uh, you know, with, standing with his ankles in the water, refusing his own urgent desires, and natural desires, because thirst is a natural desire, because he was in such a hurry, to deal with the, the needs of of others who were less able to help themselves. That's an extraordinary thing in, in society where where somebody doesn't just give up anything but his own rights because really, you know, thirst and the quenching of thirst is a human thing and we have a right to to water and to quench our thirst. The fact that people would give up their own rights for the needs of others, that's extraordinary. He wasn't giving up some casual thing, he wasn't giving up something that wasn't that necessary, but he wanted. He was giving up a fundamental right for the needs of others. So he's an antidote to egotism. He's an antidote to the sort of selfish society in which we live, where people basically are thinking of themselves first. You know, I'll think about others, but but me first. It's so the me first generation. You know, I'll look after the poor, but after I've dealt with myself, I'll... Care for you know my elderly mother, or I'll look after my brother who hasn't got a job. But first, I need to make sure that that I'm all right. That's the sort of generation we live in. Not everybody, but many. Of course, yeah. and and uh, Abbas is a perfect antidote to that. That that he gave up his rights, not just something casual, and his life, of course, as well. Trying to care for, in many cases, I mean, I mean, depending on which narrative you read, he was trying to fetch water for some girls and some children, you know. I mean, there was a, he knew that Sukaina, I think, was desperately thirsty. So it, it wasn't as if he was giving up his, his rights for some important person, you know, some world leader. It was for a little girl whom he loved and, and who, whose need he wanted to, to try to satisfy. That's an extraordinary thing. There's such a tenderness. You know, they say that when he rode his horse, his legs used to drag on the ground because he was a big guy. But, but he has a tenderness about him. That is extraordinary. Mm. I think he gets it from his mother, probably. But, but it's an extraordinary tenderness. It's like a gentle giant, Abbas. And he's the sort of person we all want in our lives. We all want someone like that. The gentle giant who you can rely on and trust. And, and I think he's, he's going to prove, I mean, I know nothing about him yet, but he's going to prove to be a very interesting character and, and an outstanding... He's going to be sort of a, a parallel of Zainab for me. That, that, that sort of masculine side of the herois, heroism of Karbala.
0: We we look forward very much um, to your book uh, on Al Abbas. Uh, peace be upon him. Uh, specifically, you mentioned you know he gets that from his mother. Uh, mm. You know that's a moving line, and it's so true. That a lot of the of what we see in Karbala is the role of his mother in bringing him up. Mm. That role where you know she would always tell him make sure. You don't call Hussein by his name, but call him my master. You mm. know, don't call him brother; call him my master. Because, and she teaches him that loyalty. So, so I look very much forward to, uh, the publication of, of your hopefully. I'm guessing it will be the fourth book. Is Number it the four? next one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the three the, the three books. Uh, you know, how have they been? Uh, your last one was the the ones on the dreams about Karbala. Mm. Uh, Of course, many have, uh, I'm sure, read the one about uh, Fatima, peace be upon her, and uh, Zainab, as well. Uh, Your third one was written after (laughs) Our last interview It was, yeah yeah. So what what is that about? Well, the
1: the third one was already in progress Because while I was researching and writing about Lady Zainab I was coming across these dream stories Mm. Because when you read about Karbala there And I just kind of put them into a little folder in my computer And thought I'm going to come back to them eventually Um, And and I did come back to them And basically there were a number of important dreams Before the birth of Al-Hussein Dreams that the Prophet himself had About Mm. about. A, a grandson who was going to be born with great rejoicing, but also about about a tragedy. Then there were l- later dreams. That uh, the, the most important one, perhaps, in the house of Um Salama, where mm. where it's not a dream really. It's a it's a, a conversation that the prophet has with Jibril, and little little Hussein stumbles into the room, mm. ducks past. Um, Salama uh, who's meant to be stopping him and she can't um, and sits on his father's shoulders his grandfather's shoulders um, and, and there's this extraordinary conversation between Jibreel and the prophet about The place where he's going to die, where this boy is going to die. And there are also um, dreams after Karbala, mostly of those who were involved in killing Hussein, who have terrible dreams about the fate awaiting them being dragged down to hell and being forced to drink pitch instead of, you know, so at Al Kawthar, when they arrive, they don't get offered the water of life, they get offered something else because they've deprived. Um, Al Hussein of water. of water, and therefore they were going to pay a price for eternity in that. So it's a series of dreams. Um, Lady Fatima had a few. Um, Ibn Abbas, uh, that great transmitter of hadith, he had some very interesting dreams about Karbala, which are recorded in the Sunni books, um, and and then a few others. So and I've blended in this idea of Jibril, who plays a very prominent role. Of all the books, it was the one I've enjoyed most, writing. It was very moving because I like angels. I have devotion to angels and... and there's a constant presence of angels the title is taken from one of the surah uh, from surah i can't remember 98 i think um and it's a translation by pictal uh, when she talks about angels hastening in fact i've got a little note in the book about it and i thought it sums up this movement of Jibril between heaven and earth because he's trying to get a message across to the prophet and it's not always being understood you know that you're going to have a grandson but your community after him is going to kill him. And the prophet's saying, I don't need a grandson who my community is going to kill. And there's this marvelous scene of Jibril rushing back each time, three times to get the message across until finally the prophet and Lady Fatima accept that this is ordained by God. So there's this wonderful movement between heaven and earth. It was a book that I loved writing. and and it was it was one of the easier it was easier than the zainab texts because zainab needed a lot of hard work trying to f- as as abbas is going to need to find the but this was just things i collected as i went along from both sunni and Shia texts
0: um, i'm not sure if we spoke about this in, in, in what detail uh, uh, we did mention you know your book on lady zainab and, and last year as i mentioned to you before the interview um, some of the parts of the clip were translated uh, from our last uh, podcast into uh, Arabic and, and, and Farsi, Persian, um, and people were intrigued by you know, your uh, they, you know, some, some I read, you know, the passion you had for writing for Lady Zainab. Um, You know, um, you started writing, of course, for those that don't know, you started writing about Lady Fatima first and then when, you know, the name Zainab would pop up every time you're researching, you decided to write about Lady Zainab. But, you know, how vital is her role in all of this, you know whether it's we spoke about Abbas's stance on the day of Ashura, Imam Al Hussein, alayhi Salam, you know Imam Al Hussein speaking to Allah, or you know he's martyred him, you know without Zainab, we Karbala would have been very different to us. So she played a very important role in that, and how how important do you think that role is through your
1: research? Oh, I think her role was crucial on a number of levels. Firstly, because she was the sister of Al-Hussein. It meant he had somebody with him all the time who he knew intimately and and identified with. Mm. And anybody who's been through suffering knows what it means to have a family member with you, standing by your side. It makes all the difference to have a familiar face. So on a purely human level, she fulfilled an important motherly function for, for her brother. But more than that, I mean, in a sense, everything after the death of al Hussein, for a while rested on her shoulders. She's the first one to begin to talk about why her brother did what he did. She does it in the streets of Kufa within days of his death. She does it in the court of Yazid. She, I mean, in the famous Ikhtijaj, the protest. She also, in a sense, does it in the court of Ibn Ziyad Mm -hmm. in her dialogue with him. So so she is the first majlis in a sense the first remembrance of of Karbala and it's a remembrance that is going to be passed on whether it's through the dreams or through the sermons she preached or through the words it's going to be passed on until our generation we are living if you say, if you like we are standing on the shoulders of lady Zainab because we are passing on to each generation what she began to pass on from the very beginning and she did so with the with the articulate speech of her own father who was known to be articulate she spoke with the tongue of ali and their texts that say this that she she, mm-hmm. she she was like her father speaking um she argued so powerfully against ibn ziyad and, and yazid that she silenced them basically she reduced them to silence in the end they could easily have killed her easily i mean ziyad ibn ziyad tried to was was going to was going to kill uh, Zain al-Abidin and we know that when she addressed him he got very angry with her and the Arabic says he had to, began to have thoughts about her, in other words that he was going to kill her but he stepped back from that because she was so persuasive and so powerful in her speech so I think that she is so deeply enmeshed in the Karbala story that you could never ever tell the story with integrity if you missed her out, she has to be part of it
0: Remembrance is the word that you chose for our podcast today. Our listeners and followers know that we ask our guests to pick a word that means something to them. Um, What does remembrance mean to Father Christopher?
1: We all have memories. Human beings are very odd. We always hold on to the bad memories and let the good ones go generally. I don't know why we do that. It's a great pity. But we all live and carry with us a great deal of memory. But the Greeks had a particular idea of memory which they called anamnesis. In other words, a remembrance that makes the event present. Mm. And that's different from me remembering where did I leave my keys or what did I have for breakfast that's a different memory it's different from me remembering how I loved my mother before she died or my father that's all important but anamnetic remembrance means remembering something in such a way that I become present at the event or the event becomes present to me that is the way karbala is remembered Every year, particularly in the days of Muharram and then on the day of Ashura, of course, but also other times of the year. It's not just remembering a famous battle or a great man. It's people who, by their remembrance, are putting themselves there and making the event present present. To them, as though they were there and fighting alongside Al Hussein, and for me, that's a very powerful remembrance because we use that sort of remembrance also in Catholic Christianity. Every time a priest celebrates Mass, we are remembering a particular event and making it actually present. So we share that idea of remembrance. So I, you know, the constant, the constant idea of the scriptures, whether they be the Hebrew or the Islamic or the Christian, is remember God don't forget what God has done. Remember God because the day is coming when you will stand before him in judgment. Remember God. And it's been the great tragedy of so many religious people that when times are good, we begin to forget God. Until there's crisis, then we run back to him. Um, and and for me, Lady Zainab is a perfect example of this constant remembrance of God's intervention, what God has done through great men and women, and and the fact that he has never abandoned us, even if we felt abandoned. You know, so that she was able to go out onto the battlefield knowing that God was present, that he would never abandon her. That was her lived conviction. So remembrance for me is, is the way that we should... You know, If you want to move into the future, don't forget to look back and learn from the wisdom of those who went before us it's a very good idea it's a very clever way of living learn from the wisdom of those who went before us look at the paths they chose and see whether they were the good paths or the bad paths so that's why i chose remembrance
0: it's a, it's very interesting you you mentioned this uh, greek uh, type of remembrance uh, what is the word Am- anamnesis wow uh, and it's 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 it's, it's, it's and when we when i remember how we Lament and commemorate Imam al Hussein, that is uh, the best way des- to describe it because we actually, the way uh, we lament and commemorate Imam al Hussein is to try and put ourselves uh, there present on the day of Ashura. There are even lines in certain texts, you know, that mention if I was not there on the day of Ashura to support you, then I am here. Know the words like Lab or Hussein. No. Here I am, Hussein. I wasn't there on the day of Ashura, and that's how we commemorate, lament, remember Imam Hussein. Specifically, of course, we try all year round, but specifically in these ten nights and specifically on the day of Ashura, um, remembrance is beautiful, and uh, millions of people uh, will flock towards Karbala. Uh, during the period of Muharram all the way coming up to Safar. Uh, I'd finally like to ask you, uh, have you given given it a thought uh, to maybe visit Karbala uh, one day to the tomb, the holy shrine of Hussein ibn Ali. Oh,
1: I've given it lots of thought and I've received numerous invitations not only to Karbala but also to Najaf, to Damascus and so I have I suppose what people call a bucket list where I've got to put these things down and uh, you know the, the time will come when I will go. Part of my problem as I keep saying to people is that I teach right through the year and you, I can't find anybody just step in and teach my courses. I teach in two universities and I work through the summer as well. But um, Karbala is at the top of my list. I mean, I want to go to the, the shrine of Lady Zainab. Um, uh, I've been to her shrine in Cairo, so now I must go to the one in Damascus. Mm-hmm. But Karbala is at the top of uh, of my list, absolutely. And, and um, not just a quick visit, but to spend some time there and absorb something of the place. Um, so, oh, I thought about it a great deal and I still think about it a great
0: deal. There are many uh, Karbalais as well as those that are Najafis, Najaf yeah. who would uh, host you I know yes, uh, yeah. and welcome you. So uh, you just let us know when and we are more than happy to invite you and host you and make sure you have a good time both in Najaf, Karbala, Baghdad, all of iraq and i'm sure uh, you know many iraqis would be happy especially i as i mentioned you know there was the clip yes that w- went sort of viral in iraq of yourself so there are many people that would love to host you and welcome you and we pray that one day you do get to uh, visit uh, karbala and najaf and hopefully damascus uh, father christopher i'd like to thank you for your time Um, I know you're very busy, it's very difficult for yourself, especially during, uh, even though the lockdowns eased up, but still we'd like to thank you for taking time out to come on the Progeny Podcast. Thank you.
1: Always a great pleasure.